Well, I too want to welcome any of you who might be viewing this and you are our guest this morning. Thanks for tuning in with us. The title this morning is The Gospel According to Isaiah. And can I just state the elephant in the room is how weird this is to preach to empty chairs. Um, But nonetheless, I preach to you, church, Trinity Community Church. The Gospel According to Isaiah. Professional cycling is grueling, taxing, It is a body-destroying sport. And the Tour de France is the World Series of Cycling. I'm a bit of a Lance Armstrong documentary nut. I think I've seen every documentary that's out there about him, and I'm about ready to re-watch all of them. His story of rising to fame, landing cancer, being treated for cancer and then recovering from that cancer to then go on and win the Tour de France, not one, not three times, not five times, but seven times over. His story absolutely captivates me. How did he overcome cancer and go on to dominate in his sport? Well, of course, if you know the story at all, He dominated his sport because he lied, he cheated, he betrayed his friends, he betrayed his family, he betrayed every yellow armed band wearing fan, he betrayed the Live Strong Foundation, he betrayed the sport that he loved so much. BBC News reported Lance Armstrong to be a quote unquote serial cheat It's said of Lance that he was the ringleader of the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. Prior to all of that, when he was in danger of losing his life, he had this to say, and hear his words closely and carefully. He said, quote, quite simply, I believed I had a responsibility to be a good person, and that meant fair, honest, hardworking, and honorable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or to some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, then I believe that should be enough. At the end of the day, if there is indeed some body or presence standing there to judge me, I hope I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life, not on whether I believed a certain book or whether I'd been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian, so you're going the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply, you know what? You're right, fine. Let's pray together, church. Father, we pray for your grace, your wisdom. Lord, is we take a few moments out of our Sunday morning to worship you together as a worshiping community. Lord, we pray as Trinity Community Church is gathered in family rooms, scattered about, Lord, we pray that your spirit, your presence would come, speak to our hearts. Lord, those who don't know you, would you come and meet with each one? Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are our guests, 
The past uh, many months, we've been in a series in this book of Isaiah. And in the past few weeks in particular, we've been pointing out Isaiah is giving us all these different contrasts. These contrasts reveal what we've called them contrasting crowns or glories. There's contrasting voices. There's the voice of God and there's the voice of this world. There's contrasting alliances. There's allying yourself with the Lord and making an alliance with the gods of this world. There's contrasting trust. Who will you trust in? Will you trust in God or will you trust in the things of this world? And so he's bringing to us all these number of contrasts. And really what Isaiah has been saying since the start of the book is that God can be counted on. That he alone can be trusted. Ally yourself to him. As opposed to trusting in the values and the wisdom of this world, trust in God. Put your faith in the Lord. And that's really the contrast that's presented to us. You can put your trust in God or you can put your trust in man. You can put your trust in yourself. You can put your trust in the things of this world. Ray Ortland Jr. says the default setting in our hearts is to treat God as a shaky person while we trot off to other saviors for reassurance. So this section that we're going to be digging into this morning, chapter 34 and 35, is really quite simple. It's stark contrast. Chapter 34 is the bad news. Chapter 35 is the good news. Chapter 34 is the right and just judgment of God. Chapter 35 is the undeserving salvation of God. Chapter 34 is God's just response to our sinfulness. Chapter 35 is God's merciful response to our sinfulness. Chapter 34 shows us that God is judge. Chapter 35 shows us that God is savior. And it's really that simple. One chapter shows us the bad news of our sinfulness and the other chapter shows us the grace and mercy of God, the good news that he offers to us in our sinfulness. It is two chapters of stark contrast, black and white, judgment or salvation. We will all experience either chapter 34 judgment or chapter 35 salvation. So let's dig in. Chapter 34, my first point is the bad news. Rick already read it, but look back with me to verse 1 of chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear. Give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. The Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. And it goes on from there. Look down at verse eight. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Verse 10, night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. And it goes on. This, this chapter, chapter 34, is the bad news. Chapter 34 is dark, filled 
with the judgment of the Lord. Now I want to do just a few moments of a little bit of Old Testament history. In verse number five, six, and nine, Isaiah refers to Edom. Edom here in Isaiah represents the whole world. If you've been with us as we've been going through this series on Isaiah, you know that many of the chapters addresses specific nations. Well, here Isaiah is widening the scope and he's making it the entire world. Edom is how he refers to that. And I want us to remember back to our Old Testament where the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God comes as their deliverer using Moses and he brings about the release from their slavery. And now the Israelites have entered into the wilderness. And if you can recall in your Old Testament where the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, at one certain point, they come to Edom. And they request of the Edomites that they could have passage, that they could have safe passage, that they would not um, destroy their land, that they would not uh, pilfer from them. They just needed to make their way through as they make their way to the promised land that God had given to the Israelites. And Edom's response to Moses and the Israelites there in the Old Testament was, no, you're going to have to make your way around us. And we might ask the question, why? Why? Why is that? Well, the Edomites came from Esau and the Israelites came from, they were descendants of Jacob. Jacob and Esau, brothers. And Jacob is that one who swindled the birthright and the blessing away from his older brother Esau. Well, it seems as if the Edomites have not forgotten that bit of history. God had blessed his people, Israel, with the promised land. And now Edom stands in the way of the promises of God. Or we could look at it like this. God has delivered, he has saved his people from Egypt. And now Edom stands in the way. They are blocking Israel's salvation. So I remind you, church, Edom here in Isaiah 34 represents the world. Edom represents the anti-God, the anti-salvation of God's people. It is the spirit of the world. And I want to say to you, it still lives today. The world wants to block you. It seeks to oppose you. It opposes the believer whose faith is in Christ as you make your way on the journey journey to your promised land, eternity with God in heaven forever. This world, this Edom opposes God and it seeks to block your salvation. And here's what's happening in Isaiah. The people of God in Isaiah's day are literally joining up with Edom. It's the spirit of the age. It's the spirit of disobedience. It's the anti-trust in God. And instead, let's trust in the things of this world. Let's make the things of this world our savior and our deliverer. And chapter 34 exists. It lives in our Bible to sober us, 
to, in a sense, smack us in the face and, and wake us up by showing us this is what awaits those who put their hope and their trust in the things of this world. And it's a dark picture. I encourage you to take the time later on to read through the chapter in its entirety. It's a dark, dark picture. It's a picture of judgment. And as I said to you already, all of our lives are marching either toward chapter 34 judgment or chapter 35 salvation. Chapter 34, trust in the saviors of this world. Trust in all that this world loves and values. Chapter 35, trust in the God who saves. Now, Isaiah wants us to see the Lord in both chapters. You know, if you're part of Trinity, we believe that this book has been given to us to reveal God. God, God has kept this book throughout time to make himself known to his people. We could say this is God on God. He wants to be known and he makes himself known on every page. And what we learn about God in chapter 34 is that God is a God of judgment. He is the judge. And what we learn about God in chapter 35 is God is the God of salvation. You know, last week at the end of the service, if you were here with us, Well, if you weren't here with us, you can go back on our website and listen to that sermon if you, you would like. But at the end of the service, my friend Richard Riendo came up to me and said to me, this isn't an exact quote, but he said, you know, people are fearful of the wrong thing. He said, people are really afraid of the virus right now. But he said, you know, the virus is really nothing. What people ought to fear isn't the virus. They ought to fear God. And you know what? That's exactly what Isaiah 34 is saying. Here again, verse one. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. The Lord is enraged. And it's a calling for people, draw near, hear, give attention, let the earth hear. It's to say, listen up, be sobered, be aware. You need to hear this. We need to know this. God will one day judge this world. He is the judge. He will bring judgment on sin. We fear a virus. Oh no, our concern shouldn't be the virus because we have a greater concern that's before us. And the greater concern before us <clears throat> is that we are sinners in need of a savior. The greater concern before us is not a virus that might end our immediate life. The greater concern before us is sin that would require judgment for eternity. God will one day judge this world. And so verse two it says the Lord is enraged. On that final day of judgment, God will explode on the earth. You can read about it in this chapter. 
Now God is a patient God. God is long-suffering. But what we see here in chapter 34 is that there will be a day, there will be a dreadful, terrible, fearful, awesome day. Verse six tells us that the Lord brings a sword. He will descend and there will be no defense. Again, in verse six, it tells us that the Lord has a sacrifice. Now that's a little odd to hear when you're reading along here in the chapter. You see, all of sins, all sins will one day be paid for. All sins will one day be atoned for. And what Isaiah is doing here when he speaks of the sacrifice of the Lord, the wages of sin is death. In other words, either we will trust in ourselves for our salvation. We will trust, I don't remember exactly how Lance Armstrong put it, but we'll trust that we'll be good people. We'll trust that we won't be liars and cheats and that we'll take care of our family and we'll do wonderful things to people around us. And we'll put our trust in our works and our efforts. And we think, well, that will commend us to God. Isaiah 34 is showing us when we put our trust in ourself or when we put in our trust in the things of this world, at that time, on the day of judgment, we will be sacrificed because sin must be paid for. Getting ahead of myself a little bit, in chapter 35, it shows us God has a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who went to the cross. Why is he on the cross? It's because he is sacrificing himself for our sins. Christ laid down his life for us on the cross to be a sacrifice for our sins so that we would not have to be sacrificed for the sins we've committed. Well, it goes on to say in verse eight that there is a day of vengeance for the Lord has a day of vengeance. And I want you to know this is a day. This is a day that's on the calendar. We don't know when that day is, but we do know that every day we live is a day that we are closer to the day of vengeance, of judgment. It's already been scheduled. God alone knows. Here's the thing. God will not allow sin to go on forever. So in verses nine through 10, he shows us that all that he created, it will become a wasteland. In verses 11 through 15, creation becomes uninhabitable. This is God, the creator of the world, the maker of all things, deconstructing his world. He's reversing all things into nothingness, emptiness, which calls us to recall Genesis 1 and 2. Humanity has disregarded God, rebelled against the creator, and now finally God returns his creation into a wasteland. Look at Isaiah 34 in the eyes and do business 
with the message of this text. There is no other plan. There's no plan B. You see, some are banking on having enough morality to make you commendable to God. Some are banking on God having a short memory of sin. Some are banking on God taking a not a big deal attitude towards our sin. Chapter 34 exists to sober us. This is the bad news. It is all of creation falling under the final and ultimate judgment of God. Why? Because humanity is corrupt. Humanity is in rebellion against God. Humanity doesn't want God in our lives. It joins with Lance Armstrong and says, at the end of the day, if there was indeed somebody or presence standing there to judge me, I hope I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life, not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I'd been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian, so you're going the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply, you know what? You're right, fine. All of humanity throughout history, since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, is on an all-out rebellion against God. And chapter 34 tells us the bad news of our rebellion. There will be judgment. Point number two is the good news, chapter 35. Verse number one, chapter 35. The wilderness, hear the contrast here. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Verse two, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The wilderness represents danger. The desert represents inhospitable. The world is an inhospitable dangerous place. Why? Because of sin, because of the curse of sin since Adam and Eve. Now think about this. All of humanity is on an all out quest to make the wilderness and the desert to be a place of rest and peace. We go out of our way to try to create our lives filled with rest and peace. We go to beaches, we go to swimming pools, we relax, we create homes and places and vacations to create rest and peace. And in some sense, all of that that we're doing, all of that striving is to, in some way, get us back to before the fall. We have hospitals and police and military and firemen and nurses and doctors and counselors and financial advisors and inventors and on and on and on. What are they all trying to do? They're trying to make the wilderness and the desert a bit more habitable. We try to civilize what is unsafe. With this current virus, the search is on for a vaccine. I try to imagine those people who it's their career, it's their job right now, night and day, they are working on a vaccine. God help them to sleep. 
We shut down the schools, the churches, the restaurants. Why? Because we live in a wilderness and a desert place. We live in a dangerous place where viruses kill people as a result of the curse of the fall back in the garden. You see, grace doesn't come to a sunny day, bright day at the beach. Grace doesn't come when we get ourselves all cleaned up. Grace doesn't come when we present ourselves as best as we can, as righteous to the Lord. You know when grace comes? Grace comes to the wilderness and grace comes to the desert of our lives. Our lives outside of Christ can be best described as a wilderness, not a mountaintop, as a desert, not a sunny day at the beach. And that's what makes chapter 35 the good news. The chapter is really a song. From start to finish, it's filled with joy. Let me read for you again, verse one, the front of the chapter, and verse 10, the end of the chapter. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Why would it be glad? The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You see, the reason they're singing in chapter 35 is because of the bad news of chapter 34. Because we, we deserve chapter 34 judgment, the bad news. But God in his mercy offers us chapter 35 salvation. the good news. Look at verse three. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. All right, chapter 34. With the recompense of God, chapter 34, he will come and save you, chapter 35. This is when it says strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. This is, this is the ministry of the body of Christ to each other. You see, the people of God in Isaiah's day were living in destruction. They could look to the north. They could see Israel. They could see their cities have been destroyed by the invading armies. These are a people so the, the vast majority of them refusing to repent. But there was a remnant of people who repented of their sins and returned to God and were trusting in the Lord for their salvation. And in the midst of all of that, Isaiah is writing to the people of God. And I will say to us, he is writing to us today in our current circumstances. And he says to the church, Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. 
Behold your God. Behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Church, Trinity Community Church. I call on us from the word of God to be a verse three, verse four people of God in the midst of COVID-19. To be a people who are strengthening weak hands and making firm, feeble knees. To say to the anxious heart, be strong and fear not, behold your God. Why? Because God will save you. See, chapter 35 is God reversing the wilderness and the desert. Take courage, be strong. Verse five, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man will leap Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That should, that should direct our attention. Where, where do we see that? Where do we see those verses play out? Well, there's a number of places that we could go to in our New Testament in the ministry and the life of Jesus. I'm in Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, verse 18, it says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl rose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. And then it goes on from there where Jesus heals two individuals there. They are two men who are blind. And it goes on from there and Verse 32, Jesus heals an individual who is unable to speak. It sounds a lot like chapter 35, verses five and six. You see, Isaiah is prophesying about a savior who will come. And here we see Jesus, his feet are on the ground. He's come in human flesh and he's doing the very things Isaiah had prophesied about so many years prior. In chapter 11 of Matthew, his disciple John, it records of him, it says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, these deeds, that he's healing individuals, that folks are being raised from the dead. When John heard about that in prison, about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, they're asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one that Isaiah prophesied about? Or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. 
Jesus is saying, I am Isaiah 35, five and six. I am that man. I am the one. You know, miracles are only miracles in a fallen world. There would be no such thing as a miracle in a non-fallen world. Every miracle, every head cold that fades away is a reminder, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You see, the way it's supposed to be, the way it was created initially to be, is that there would be no head colds. There would be no viruses. That would be what's normal. What we see in chapter 35 is God makes what is barren, wilderness and desert, into what is beautiful. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. There's now water in the wilderness. There's streams in the desert. And the point here is for us to see the sovereign grace and mercy of God is accomplishing what we are unable to accomplish. Even with all of our technology, we can't bring us back to what is before the fall. We're unable to accomplish peace and rest in the wilderness. And even as in, in our prosperity, in all our vacations, in all of our houses and the pools we might swim in or the beaches we go to or our possessions, the things that we buy, in an effort to get us back, get us out of the wasteland, if we're honest with ourselves, we come to a place and we realize it's just empty stuff. It doesn't answer the longing in our heart. Verse eight, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. A highway, it was literally a raised Highway. It's not what we think of as a highway. It was a clearly visible pathway. God, God here in verse eight is making it easy. It says, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Listen, that, that's good news for me because in my sinfulness, I'm a fool. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. They will see that clear pathway. I love how the writers of scripture speak of grace and then out of that grace, they speak of holiness. It's the way of holiness is how it's put. It reminds me of Psalms 23 that he is leading us to paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads us to holiness. We walk in that way. We have been set apart for Christ. Verse nine no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it, nor sh they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. What is he saying? He's saying, look, nothing, the, a ravenous beast will not separate you from God. No beast will separate you. And it recalls to mind Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Church, please think 
This is the word of the Lord for us in the midst of all that we're going through. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Isaiah would say, should, should any lion, should any ravenous beast, famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the pathway of the redeemed. It says, verse 10, and the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. The, the, the ransomed of the Lord is what it says. The ransom, meaning those who are purchased. The ransomed were those who were in the slave trade and they were, they were purchased by someone who had the means. They were bought. You couldn't buy yourself out. You couldn't ransom yourself. But here, as it speaks of verse 10, it's pointing forward to Jesus Christ who came and he is the ransom. He's the one that paid the ransom price. He's the one that frees you from the slavery of sin and death. It is Christ alone who paid the ransom price for you. And that price was nothing other than the blood of Christ. He laid down his life. He purchased you. He redeemed you. As bad as chapter 34 is the judgment of God, the glory, the joy, the rejoicing, the singing of chapter 35 is so much more for the ransomed, redeemed people of God. This is the pathway for the redeemed, meaning it is the pathway for the purchased, the paid for, the blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ. But please hear me. It says in verse eight, there in the middle, the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Jesus Christ is that way. It's not telling you, it's not telling us to in some way clean yourself. It's telling us to look to Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you. He was that sacrifice. To repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to not look to the world as your savior, but to trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, to not look to the things of this world, to your possessions, to fill the need of the wilderness and the dry land and the desert, but to rejoice in God that Christ came, grace came to the wilderness, to the desert, and he redeemed you. It is his righteousness, not yours, that will save you. What will we do with chapter 34 and chapter 35? How will we, re we 
respond to this. For some who are listening, the response for you right where you're at this morning is to pause, it's to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And for others of you, for those who are the followers of Jesus Christ, your response this morning is to sing. It's to join with Isaiah. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The contrast is stark. And I encourage everyone who's hearing my voice, every person, respond either in repentance and faith or respond with joyful, gladful singing to our great God. Let's stand and let's sing together.